I'm very glad to be able to open the Word with you again today. Some of you have asked me why I've chosen to preach on the text that I have, and basically it's because as I've trained as a biblical counselor and pursuing certification with ACBC as a biblical counselor, became aware that there are certain, certain struggles that Christians commonly face, and they often show up in biblical counseling. Anger, anxiety, and others, they are some of the most common issues. So I thought it would be profitable to at least broach those topics even from the pulpit. Obviously, I can't say everything that the Bible says about those issues right now. Lord willing, we can come back and address those more fully in a, in a class later on. I'm hoping that we can do a counseling class along those lines. Today's topic is another very common issue in biblical counseling, as it is, I think, in Christianity as a whole. So I trust that this time will be profitable for us all. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you every hour, and we need your word. It is our food. It's more important than physical food. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to deliver this food to your people. Help me to be able to explain this clearly, accurately, and well. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict, encourage, transform hearts as a result. You're the one with the power. But use these means now, just as you have ordained. In Jesus' name. Amen. William Shakespeare. Ever heard of him? The famous English playwright from the 16th century. Probably know him for his famous plays like Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. But he also published many poems. One of his more unusual poems is Sonnet 129. I say this is unusual because the poem is a meditation on sexual lust. Listen to what Shakespeare wrote in this short poem. Now this is early modern English poetry, so don't worry if you don't get every word. I know it's a little bit hard. Just listen for the main ideas. This is the poem. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, Savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit, and in possession so, had, having, and in quest to have, Extreme, a bliss and proof, and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. From what we can tell about Shakespeare today, he was not a true Christian. Nevertheless, even Shakespeare could observe what lust and the immorality that springs from lust is really like. Lust is selfish. It leads to many other sins. Lust is controlling, causing a person to do the opposite of what is wise. And lust is deceptive. It promises joy and fulfillment, but it just leaves regret and emptiness instead. 
But what is most startling about Shakespeare's poem is the admission he makes at the end. Even though many have discovered and experienced the truly evil and vain nature of lust, that does not stop them from going back to it again and again. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, immorality and lust have been characteristic of the sinful human race. Romans 1, actually, Romans 1, 24 to 27, says that increasing sexual perversion is the natural outcome of those who rebel against their creator. God actually gives them over to that, he says. And though different cultures throughout history have been more open or less open about sexual sin, make no mistake, it has been a problem in every culture, in every place of the world throughout time. Our modern American culture is no exception. Not only is sexual sin excused today, it's even promoted and celebrated. And this we see all around us, don't we? I don't have to prove that to you. But how should we as Christians live in such a world? Consider what the Apostle Paul writes to early Christians. Christians who lived in a society and a world that is not much different from our own in terms of immorality. It was just as bad, or perhaps even worse. And listen to what he writes to the Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Whoa. Is such really possible? Can purity and self-control be expected of those who say they truly know God? Consider for yourselves. Have you realized how evil, destructive, and wasteful immorality is? And if you have realized it, do you nevertheless keep turning to immorality? Do you appreciate the seriousness of safeguarding yourself against sexual sin? And have you discovered that there is a better and more joyful way, that is, the way of the Lord in a chaste life? Now, I should say at the outset, the good news of the gospel, my friends, is that there is forgiving, cleansing, and transforming grace in Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of immorality you've been involved with, the Lord is able to cleanse and change you. But how does that come about? It comes about by faith and repentance. And repentance is often the part that's missed. What is repentance? It is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Your mind needs to be transformed in the way you think about immorality. To help us in this process, I think it would be good to examine again the teaching of the Scriptures when it comes to this topic. So please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's hear God speak on the issue of immorality. The title of my message today is Glorify God in Your Body. That's ultimately what we want to do as we have our minds transformed in the way we think about our bodies, the way we think about sex, and the way we think about immorality. 
Our text is specifically 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Before I read it, a few quick words of background. This text is part of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a group of mostly Gentile Christians in Corinth, which is in Greece. The Corinthians, though they are true believers, and Paul affirms that at the beginning of his letter, he says, I thank the Lord for you. They have nonetheless become increasingly proud and selfish and excusing of sin. And this appears to be because they have adopted certain worldly ideas and called it Christianity. Paul writes this letter to the church, the letter of 1 Corinthians, to correct their thinking and their behavior on various issues, including immorality. Let's hear what Paul says specifically to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Here's the word of the Lord. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As we just examine this passage in general, notice first the words immorality and immoral that appear several times. What exactly is immorality? It would be useful for us to define that term. The Greek word used for immorality in our translation is porneia, and it refers to any kind of unrighteous sexual activity. How do you know what's unrighteous sexual activity? Anything that goes against God's original design for it in marriage. Any pursuit of sexual pleasure or fulfillment outside of marriage is immorality. See, God created marriage. He loves marriage. It ultimately pictures Christ in the church. And God designed sexual intimacy to be a blessed part of that one flesh union of marriage. One man and one woman in covenant together. This physical union is not only for procreation, but also for pleasure, as Proverbs 5 says, we read earlier, and Song of Solomon. Even within marriage, though, sexual intimacy is to be pursued not chiefly to fulfill one's own, one's own desires, but actually the desires of the other spouse, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5. Your body is not your own, it actually belongs to your spouse. So God's original design for marriage and for sex is good. But every sexual pursuit that violates this original design from God, God hates and he calls it immorality. These include outward acts, such as premarital sex, 
adultery, pornography, solo stimulation, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, prostitution, and rape. But that's not the only place. Also, internally, Jesus says that lustful looks or thoughts or desires are immorality of heart, adultery of heart, and they are sin before God. That's Matthew 5. And even lustful and coarse words are immoral, according to Paul in Ephesians 5. So all of this is being brought to bear when you see the term immorality in the Scriptures. And notice, as we continue to look at this passage in general, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, we have two commands here. There's a command in verse 18, flee immorality, and then there's a command in verse 20, glorify God in your body. And these two commands really go together. You can't do one without the other. But notice where they appear in the text, kind of towards the end of this section. This delay is significant. It shows this that even though obedience to these two commands is the intended outcome of Paul's instruction, nevertheless, he wants to address the thinking first. He wants to make sure we're thinking about immorality rightly before we respond with proper behavior. So we're going to mimic Paul's approach as we study this passage. We're going to investigate or we're going to listen as Paul presents three critical truths about the body that should lead us to flee immorality and glorify God in our bodies instead. We're going to investigate these three truths, and then we're going to circle back to look at the commands as application. I believe this is what Paul intended. What are the three critical truths we need to know? We need to appreciate and embrace. I give them to you in outline. Number one, our bodies matter to God. Number two, our bodies are in union with Christ. And number three, our bodies must not be desecrated. Let's take a look at this first critical truth as it appears in verses 12 to 14. Why should you flee immorality and glorify God in your body instead? Number one, our bodies matter to God. Now, these first few verses need a little bit of background to help you appreciate them. There's always a temptation as Christians to think in one way or another that what we do in the body does not matter. Things physical don't matter to God. This certainly was a temptation in ancient Corinth due to popular Greek thought. Popular Greek thought at the time was dualistic. It saw the body and things physical as evil or inferior, while the spirit things intellectual, things spiritual, were superior and good innately. They also saw these things as separate from one another. And the body was kind of like a prison for your true self, which was your soul or your spirit. And as long as your spirit was right with the divine or the forces of the world, your body didn't really matter. This was a common Greek thought. And this popular thinking soon attached itself to the Christian faith. Because, you see, Christians like Paul were coming around and preaching that you need faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone is what saves. Not any works, not any rituals, none of those physical things. Moreover, Paul taught, the teachers of God taught, that 
issues like food, drink, circumcision, again, these outward, external, physical issues, they ultimately don't matter to God. What matters is a clean conscience and doing what, and making sure that you don't cause your brother to stumble. Now you can see where this Christian truth and this pagan idea seem to overlap. And so some Christians began to think, some Greek converts, well, as long as I have faith in Christ, as long as I'm right with God, it doesn't really matter what I do in the body. I can even indulge in immorality. Immorality can be excused, tolerated, justified if I have the right spiritual beliefs and a relationship with God. A situation like this seems to have arisen in Corinth. There were Corinthians suggesting that immorality, as it's just a function of the body, doesn't really matter to God. And Paul is responding to this kind of thinking in verses 12 to 14 by bringing up the slogans or common sayings that were being circulated in the church. Not by everybody, probably, but by some in the church to justify the body doesn't really matter. This helps explain why there's such an abrupt transition between verse 11. We didn't read that. But verse 11 and verse 12, it's pretty abrupt. And also, as we look at verses 12, 13, and 14, there's a series of contrasts presented. It's almost like Paul keeps on contradicting himself. Why is he doing that? That's because he's responding to, or he appears to be responding to, what the Corinthians, what some of the Corinthians were saying. Notice the first saying or slogan that Paul confronts at the beginning of verse 12. People were saying, all things are lawful for me. Now that's a pretty sweeping statement, isn't it? I have the right to do whatever I want. I'm clean in Christ. I'm free in Christ. The body doesn't matter. This isn't too far even from what some Christians say today. But notice how Paul responds. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. And that's an interesting response. Because Paul doesn't do maybe what we think he might do. He doesn't come right out and reject their slogan, but he shows that it's incomplete. And that it comes from an improper perspective. A misguided perspective. Paul's saying, yes, you Corinthians are clean in Christ. And you do have amazing freedom in Christ. But do you remember that Christ called you to live wisely and always to look at what is the most profitable choice in any situation? What is the most useful, what is the most profitable, profitable action? Immorality, even as we read earlier, as Greg read earlier from Proverbs 5, is inherently destructive. It is self-destructive and it's destructive to others. It destroys health, it destroys wealth, it destroys reputation, it destroys relationships. So even before he's really dealt with the issue, he says, Corinthians, how does giving free reign to your body, how does just opening yourself up to immorality fit with this basic calling you have as a Christian? To do what is most profitable. Paul has another response to this slogan, though, at the end of verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And isn't this another fundamental Christian principle? When we became believers, we renounced lordship over our own lives. And we transferred that lordship to Jesus, to God, who 
to whom that lordship rightfully belongs. Jesus is our exclusive master now. And he's made it quite clear in his word that he will not share mastery with anyone else or with any other power. You can just even go back to that passage we looked at last week. No man can serve two masters. Because this is true, Paul now challenges the Corinthians and us with that principle. How does indulging in immorality and giving free reign to your body fit with this basic Christian calling? Immorality is inherently enslaving and controlling. It demands greater and greater amounts of your time, your attention, and your resources. How does this fit with your calling to serve Christ and Him alone, not to be under the control of something else? Next slogan that Paul deals with in the beginning of verse 13 is somewhat longer. Actually, it has two parts. Listen to what he is basically quoting from them. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. There are two excuses given here for the body and for immorality. The first is that immorality is basically necessary and inevitable. I mean, it's just like the stomach and food, they say. God made the stomach for food, to enjoy all different kinds of food. In the same way, God made the human body for sex and for all different kinds of sex. That's what the body was designed for. The stomach was designed for food. The body's designed for sex. But you can't get that in God's limited marriage design. So in other words, immorality is a biological need. Don't try to stop it. It's natural. It's healthy. And again, don't we hear the same idea in our society today? The second excuse, though, is that immorality is also inconsequential. Because again, think about the stomach and food. They're saying, stomach's not going to last forever. Food's not going to last forever. So does it really matter what foods you choose to eat or what foods you choose not to eat? It's all the same destiny in the end. You might as well eat what you want. In the same way, they're implying, our bodies are not going to last forever and our sexual relationships are not going to last forever. So no matter how much we indulge or whether we indulge, the outcome is the same in the end. So whatever we do in the body is eternally inconsequential. So why not just enjoy ourselves? Why fight so hard to restrain the body? It doesn't matter in the end. Listen to to Paul's two-part response to these excuses. His response is in verses 13 to 14. He says, Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now this is really interesting. The first part of Paul's response, he's accomplishing the equivalent of a judo flip. Paul doesn't simply report or retort that the body is made for sex and marriage. But actually, he says it's made for something much grander, for the Lord himself. (laughs) Paul says to us and to them, you know what is more necessary to your body and to its life than food 
or sexual relationships? Jesus Christ. Knowing him and walking with him. Your body, now listen now, this is true for all of you. Your body was meant for Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was meant for your body. You want to talk about created purposes? Indulging in immorality isn't fulfilling your created purpose. That's actually going against it. Your body was created for the Lord, for serving him and knowing him. As for the second part of their excuse, notice again, Paul turns the Corinthian words on their head. He says, yes, our bodies and their appetites will one day come to an end, but that is not the end of our bodies. The same bodies that lived on the earth, bodies that we chose whether to indulge in immorality or not, those same bodies will be raised by the Lord in the same way that the Lord's body was raised. So don't talk as if it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies because we're just going to discard them. You're going to get it back. And then your body will be an eternal testimony to how you chose to live on the earth. By the way, did you notice that Paul doesn't say God will raise up our bodies through his power, but rather God will raise us up through his power? Is that an important distinction? Is Paul saying that it's not our bodies that are going to be raised, that are going to be raised, it's just our spirits? Actually, no. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says much more about the resurrection. He's quite clear. Our bodies, our actual bodies, will be raised. Why doesn't he say that here? It's because Paul is emphasizing that you cannot distance yourself from your body. This whole Greek idea, which is still around today, that the soul is imprisoned in the body like a shell, is wrong. Rather, you are your body. That's not all that you are, but that's part of what you are. You are a complex interconnection of body and soul. You have an outer man, and you have an inner man. These are both terms used to describe the Christian experience in the Bible. But they're both man. They're both you. So therefore, let us have none of this, Paul is saying. Let's have none of this. It doesn't matter what I do in the body. It certainly does matter what you do in the body because you are your body. And whether you choose to be immoral with your body or not matters to God and has eternal consequences. Now, friends, think about what these truths mean for you. You cannot claim that you are spiritually safe while you pursue immorality. Because God has called you, just like he called the Corinthians, you are to live wisely. You are to do what is most profitable for my sake, for your sake, for others' sake. You also cannot remain nonchalant about whether immorality or something else places you in bondage. Because God says, I will not tolerate anyone or anything being master over you except me. You cannot excuse immorality as biologically or emotionally necessary because God says he and his will is more necessary than anything else in life. And you cannot treat sexual sin as inconsequential because in some mysterious sense, you will wear the consequences of your sexual choices for eternity. 
particularly then. Our bodies matter to God. And that should change the way we live. There's a second critical truth that Paul presents next as to why we should flee immorality, which should cause us to flee immorality and instead glorify God in our bodies. Number two, our bodies are in union with Christ. Now this is really profound. Look again at verses 15 to 17. I'm going to discuss these verses all at once. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In these verses, Paul draws our attention to an amazing theological fact. Our union with Christ. Paul is essentially asking, don't you remember that when you became a Christian, all of you was placed into Christ? You spiritually became a member of his body. This really is how all salvation blessings come to us. Because when we believe in Jesus, when we have faith in the Lord, not so much the faith that saves us, it's how that faith attaches us to the one who has the power to save us. In a mysterious way, through faith, we're attached to God himself, the Son of God, in a kind of spiritual marriage. We become one with the Lord. And just like in a real marriage, or not real marriage, but in a, in a human marriage, marriage that we experience in this world, Everything that belongs to one spouse now belongs to the other spouse. And that's really good news for us because what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ? Life, eternal life, righteousness, strength, blessing. All of those get passed over to us. They pour into our lives because we're attached to Jesus. And what do we have to offer him? Sin, death, humiliation. He took that all, and what did he do with it? He paid it at the cross. He suffered death. He suffered the wrath of God that was due our sin for our rebellion against our Creator. And he suffered the most extreme humiliation because we're now attached to him. He cares for us as his own body, as Ephesians 5 says. This is a mysterious union. It cannot be fully understood, and yet it is real, and it is the foundation of our hope and eternal life. What does this have to do with immorality? Notice, Paul's asking us to consider this question. Having been made part of such an amazing union with the Lord himself, will you then seek out a different and contradictory union? Because in these verses, Paul is presenting and contrasting two different unions. You have, on the one hand, total union body and soul, with Christ through the Spirit. And then on the other hand, you have total union, body and soul, with a prostitute through the flesh. Both of these unions are a version of that fundamental one flesh marriage paradigm established by God in Genesis 2.24. That's what Paul quotes in verse 16. 
By the way, prostitution was the most common temptation to immorality in Corinth. But the prostitute here really stands for any kind of immorality. Don't think this is just talking about physical, actual prostitution. Because of these contrasting unions, notice what Paul says is essentially taking place, theologically, spiritually taking place, when a Christian goes to visit a prostitute. Paul says the Christian takes away, and that's a good translation of the Greek verb here, not simply takes, takes away, he removes the members of Christ, which is what he is, which is what he's became by union with Christ. He removes those members, he removes himself from union with Christ, and he instead makes those members, makes Christ members, one with a harlot, members of a prostitute. What's Paul's reaction to this theoretical scenario? Should such a situation ever take place? Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. Never. All those would be proper translations. Why such a strong response, Paul? Clearly, he's showing that this ought to be unthinkable to us. But he doesn't specifically draw out the implications. Nevertheless, we just think about it, we can see those implications, can't we? I think there are two. On the one hand, because of these realities, because of a reality of union with Christ, can anyone conceive of a greater blasphemy against the saving Lord than to try to unite him with immorality? This is what is attempted anytime any Christian Anytime even any one of you seeks out immorality. That person not only robs Christ of the members that belong to him, that are his, but he then seeks to defile those members and even Christ himself in blatant sin. What would the Lord think of this? Will the perfect holy one whose eyes are a flame of fire, whose feet are burnished bronze, according to John's vision and revelation, will he excuse this? Will he tolerate this? Oh, it doesn't matter if you defile me. I'm only the holy one. Any Christian who loves Christ at all or has a shred of holy fear would not dare even consider such a blasphemy, such a blasphemous act, much less carry it out. That's one implication. But on the other hand, second implication. If you remove yourself from Christ and unite yourself with a harlot, unite yourself with immorality, how will you experience anything but eternal and spiritual death? You know, if you caught it when Greg was reading Proverbs 5 earlier, prostitutes are associated with death. Their way goes down to death. They themselves are on that way and they don't know it. And when you go with them, you go down to death. Union with Christ is life and righteousness. Union with a prostitute, union with immorality is uncleanness and death. And you have to choose one or the other. Because let's face it, Paul says you cannot be united with Christ and a prostitute at the same time. You have to remove your members from one to be joined to the other. 
You can be a member of Christ's body, or you can be a member of a harlot's body. You can have Christ be your master, or you can have immorality be your master. But you cannot serve both. I might ask, wait, Dave, are you saying that I can lose my salvation through immorality? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, and what the Lord is saying, is that it is totally inconsistent for someone who says he's attached to Jesus Christ to then go and attach himself to immorality. Himself or herself. Now yes, true Christians can fall into sexual sin. And as I said, there is forgiving and transforming grace in the Lord. Praise God for that. We need that. That, is, that gives us hope. But let us not kid ourselves into thinking that God understands. God overlooks immorality. And let us not kid ourselves that we are repentant when nothing changes in our lives. Oh yeah, every time I, every time I participate, I'm just so sorry and, and I don't ever want to do it again. But do you keep on doing it? That's not repentance. A true change in mind leads to a true change in action. After all, what does 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 say? I didn't read this yet, but just go back right before our passage. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Most of the things in that list are immorality. The beginning part of that list. So my friends, hear this sobering word from the Lord. You cannot have Christ in immorality too. You cannot claim union with Christ while you regularly seek union with a prostitute. So which do you want? Obviously union with Christ is so much better. All life and blessing and joy is in Him. So why would you faithlessly choose instead the short-lived pleasure and the long-term poison of a harlot? Both the fact that our bodies matter to God and the fact that our bodies are in union with Christ if we know Him, they should cause us to flee immorality and seek to glorify God in our bodies instead. But there's one more critical truth that should motivate these actions, and we see this in verses 18 to 20. In this last section, I think we can divide into some points. Oh, actually, let me give you the main point first. Verses 18 to 20, here's the third point. Our bodies must not be desecrated. Our bodies must not be desecrated. And as I was saying, we can break this last section into three subpoints, three different ways where we can unacceptably desecrate our bodies, and God says, don't do it. The first one is in verse 18. This is 3a. Immorality first desecrates man's created dignity. Look at verse 18. Paul says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now we'll come back to the phrase flee immorality in just a little bit. But the second half of this verse has long presented a puzzle to interpreters. What does Paul mean? In what sense is immorality a unique sin against a person's own body? How is it different than other sins against the body like drunkenness or gluttony or 
even suicide? That's a difficult question to answer. There's no unity among interpreters on that issue. Certainly there is something unique, though, about sexual sin. My view as to why it is a particular sin against the body is that sexual sin joins people, body and soul, not just body. The one flesh union that God designed in marriage is not just physical. It joins people, body and soul, in an inappropriate way because they're not actually married. Thus, it fundamentally degrades people. It degrades people who were made in the image of God. There's something about that improper union that degrades the image of God. And thus, immoral persons are afflicted with this deep sense of uncleanness and shame that seems to come from within and never go away. The reason I say this is partly due to what Paul says in Romans 124. Romans 124 and 126, he's talking about how immorality results when people rebel against God. And he says, God gives them over to dishonor their bodies, to to desecrate their bodies among themselves. Something about immorality that uniquely desecrates the body, and I think it has to do with God's image. God doesn't want to see his image desecrated, neither should we. That's the first way that our bodies must not be desecrated. A second way, 3B, immorality desecrates the Holy Spirit's dwelling. Or actually, let me say it this way, be more parallel. Desecrates the Spirit's holy dwelling. Look now at verse 19. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? We'll just stop right there. I don't know about you, but I sometimes hear well-meaning Christians misapplying this verse. What? You're going to eat that whopper? Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's true that we should steward our bodies well, and sometimes that means eating more or less healthy. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. It's not talking about your body's health or its appearance. It's talking about sin. Paul is drawing attention to another amazing salvation blessing, and that is indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If if you've been saved by God, if you've been united to Christ, then you've also received God's Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you, to enlighten you, to cause you to follow after the Lord. He dwells in you just like God dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talked about the whole church being the dwelling place or the temple of God. But now he says it actually applies on an individual basis too. You, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing reality. But why is that significant when it comes to immorality? Well, because... Sexual sin, and this is what Paul is implying here, sexual sin, which is committed with the body, it desecrates the Holy Spirit's temple. It defiles it. As one pastor put it, indulging in immorality is like taking a prostitute right into God's holy of holies. Because that's what your body is as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's, what, that's how God sees your immorality if you turn to it. Now, this reality, of course, again, it should grieve anybody who loves God, 
who's grateful for salvation, who's grateful for the Holy Spirit and all the Spirit's work and the Spirit's guarantee of an eternal inheritance. But again, it should also sober us. Because how did God feel about the temple's desecration by sin in the Old Testament? People of Israel didn't follow the Lord faithfully. They literally brought sin into their temple. How did God respond? In judgment. God not only removed his glory from the temple, he removed his presence from the temple, but he allowed his temple, his physical temple, to be destroyed. He says, I'd rather this temple that I set up by my own special grace, I'd rather be destroyed than to continue to allow my name to be dishonored by the sin that goes on here. If God is a holy God and if he doesn't change, should we expect him to act any differently with us if our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? There's one other way that we must not desecrate the bodies that God has given us. A third way, 3C, that immorality desecrates, and it is immorality desecrates the Son's redeeming blood. Look now at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20. I'm going to borrow the beginning of verse 19 just for the sense. Or do you not know that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Here Paul reminds us that our bodies, if we are in Christ, don't actually belong to us. In truth, everyone's everyone's body belongs to God in a certain sense because he's the creator. He made you. He made your body. It belongs to him. But... In another sense, the bodies of believers uniquely belong to God because they have been redeemed. They have been bought by the Son. You see, formerly, those of us who are now in Christ, we were enslaved. We were enslaved to sin, to our own passions, to Satan, to the world system. Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 talk about that. But then the Son of God Jesus, in his incredible salvation work, he redeemed us. He bought us back. That's what redeem means. And what was the price of our redemption? The blood of Jesus on the cross. His suffering, his death, even under the eternal, infinite wrath of God. He paid all of that in order to buy us back from that slavery. However, Our redemption is not such that we suddenly became free and could just do whatever we pleased. Rather, ownership was transferred. Formerly, we were slaves of sin, Satan, but now, Romans 6 says, we are slaves of righteousness. We have become slaves of Christ. Now, unlike most slavery in the world, slavery to Christ is happy servitude because when he's your master, you know that he will love and care for you eternally. And amazingly, one of the things that he promises his slaves in the New Testament is that he will one day cause us to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. We who are unworthy slaves. This is what he accomplished by his redemption work on the cross. His life, death, and resurrection. These are wonderful realities, but they mean that We are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to him. They are his property. 
So what does this mean for immorality? It means our bodies are not ours to use or abuse as we see fit with sexual sin. And if we instead do that, it is theft of our master's property and a blasphemy of the great price that he paid to obtain us for himself. It is a blasphemy against the redeeming blood of Christ. And again, if you love Christ, can you bear to blaspheme him that way? And will the Lord bear with our dishonoring him in such a strident way? Let us fear desecrating the blood-bought bodies that we have from Christ. Let's review the truths we've seen thus far. Paul has shown us, first of all, that our bodies matter to God. Second of all, that our bodies are in union with Christ. And third, that our bodies must not be desecrated. Not desecrated by violating our created dignity, by defiling the Spirit's holy dwelling, but by blaspheming the blood of Christ's redemption. These truths are not just presented to us to educate us, but to move us to action, to move us to change, to obey the Lord's commands. What are those two commands? Back to verse 18, we see the first one. Paul says, flee immorality. And doesn't this just make sense after all we've seen? This is a present tense verb, meaning not just you do it one time, but you keep on doing it. Continuous action. Keep on fleeing. And what does it mean to flee? It means to run like your life depended on it. That's the way we should treat immorality because in a way, that same uh, that same picture is true. Your eternal soul depends on how you treat immorality. We have to do as Proverbs 5 says, as Greg read. Solomon counsels, God counsels, do not even go near the door of her house. Where temptation is coming or might come, give that situation a wide berth. Because you don't want to dishonor the Lord. Now, obviously, if you're currently involved in immorality, fleeing immorality means that you must stop. Don't give any excuses. Stop. Stop doing it. Don't start doing it again. And run away from anything that will encourage you to do it. Be like Joseph in Genesis 39, who famously runs out of Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife tries to entice him when nobody else is around. He left his cloak behind. It got him in trouble. But he says, better that and for me to fall into sexual sin and dishonor my Creator and my Lord. What are some practical ways that we can do this? I'll just give you some. What does it mean to flee immorality practically? It means removing or mitigating sources of temptation in your life, sources of sexual temptation. And this is going to be different for every person. It may be people, it may be relationships, it may be situations, it may be entertainment, it may be social media, it may be technologies of different kinds. Whatever it is, you either have to change your use of it in such a way that it's no longer a temptation to you, or you have to get rid of it. Say, oh, that seems kind of radical. Nothing different than what Jesus said. Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out. Cut it off. Why? Better for you to be maimed and get eternal life than to be whole and to be damned forever. Remove sources of temptation, but also... Fleeing means changing your thought life. You can remove all the external sources of temptation, but if you don't deal with the internal thoughts, you're going to go right back. You have to change the way you think. 
You have to put off unrighteous thoughts, unprofitable thoughts, lustful thoughts, and then replace them. You can't just be like, okay, can't think about that, can't think about that, can't think about that, because what are you going to do? You're going to think about it. You have to think about what God calls you to think about. Philippians 4, 8, right? Think about what is true, what is lovely, what is praiseworthy, etc. Ultimately, those things are related to the Lord. God has given you plenty of things to think about in this world that are right and that lead you to glorify God. That's what you want to think about instead. Remove sources of temptation, change the way you think, but also change where you look for comfort when life gets hard. I know that many people turn to immorality because they're looking for comfort. They feel depressed, discouraged, anxious, angry. They feel like immorality will give them some some respite. Of course, though, as anyone knows who's ever done that, it is a short-lived comfort that brings greater pain in the end. You must change where you look for comfort. Ultimately, your comfort has to come from the Lord. And he's more than sufficient to give you comfort. Paul says he is the God of all comfort, who comforts the depressed. You're going through a hard time? Go to the Lord. Don't go to immorality. He will give you true comfort. But you have to have faith. Another way is, if you're married, do what Proverbs 5 says. Rejoice in your spouse rather than immorality. God gave your spouse to you. Partly so that you can enjoy that sexual relationship. And that's a safeguard for you. Now, sometimes that's not possible, not available. Or maybe you have a strained relationship with your spouse. God is still sufficient for you. But if you do have a strained relationship, let this promise from God, this intended blessing from God, be a motivation for you to seek reconciliation, to repent, and to seek to make peace with your spouse that you can enjoy marriage as God meant it to be. One final way, practical way, of how we can flee immorality is get help from your brothers and sisters in the church. Immorality is a uniquely difficult, enslaving, and entangling sin. But God gave you a resource that can deliver you out of it. He gave you the church. Go to your mature brothers. Go to your mature sisters, depending on what your gender is, and ask them to help you. God put these people around you to encourage you, to instruct you, to pray for you, ultimately to help you achieve victory. Many people don't truly put immorality to death until they get help from others. God gave you that resource because he knows you need it. You've got to take advantage of it. So those are some practical ways. As we see this first command, in light of these truths about the body, flee immorality. But there's a second command, and this we'll just talk about briefly. Look at that second one in verse 20. Therefore, this is how he finishes the whole thing, glorify God in your body. You know, when it comes to the issue of sexual purity, often instruction about it is framed in the negative full of prohibitions and warnings. And that is right. That is biblical. That is necessary. We need a holy fear of God and of sin. But there's something profound about this second command because, as you might notice, it's so positive. It's not saying don't do this. Actually, do this instead. You see, these exhortations from God are not a mere duty, a mere warning. They are an entreaty. They are an invitation They are an opportunity leading to your delight. 
How so? You see, your body and its sexuality, they are not merely burdens to be endured. They are a way that you can enjoy God and put Him on display to the world. God calls you, God calls me to live in a wise and self-controlled way because He says that glorifies Him. It's not a neutral thing that you can sometimes slip away from and sin against God. It is something that actually glorifies the Lord. He says, I am pleased by that. You are showing how worthy I am by how you steward your body. So let us embrace this call from Christ. It is the way to joy. You know, so often the temptation of immorality is you're missing out. There's some pleasure, there's some good that God is keeping you away from, and so you need to go against God. But the truth is, of course, the opposite. Those who refuse to live in a holy way with their sexuality, they are the ones who truly miss out because they miss out on the chance to glorify God in their bodies, to walk with the Lord, to know the Lord, to revel in the joy of the Lord continually. I want that for all of you. Paul wanted that for the Corinthians. God wants that for you. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's true even when it comes to glorifying God in our bodies. Let me say again. If you just think about your life and what you've done in the past, what you've done with your body, all the immorality that you've indulged in, take courage. The Lord is able to forgive. He's able to cleanse. It doesn't matter how unholy you've been with your body. Yes, there are some consequences that will never go away. But you can be completely clean in Christ. Think about it. In Jesus' own ministry, who are the ones who are often flocking to him and being saved? Prostitutes. Or if you just go back to 1 Corinthians 6.11, I read you that list where he says, the unrighteous not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at all these immoral types of people. They will not inherit. But then look what he says at the end. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord speaking to you today. Take hold of this invitation from God. Turn from immorality. Flee from immorality. And turn to Christ by repentance and faith. Glorify God in your body. And you will not only know the joy of the Lord, but you will inherit eternal life pray. Lord God, we thank you for this